Section 31 of Religious Studies, Sketches, and Poems. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lois Beachy Yoder, Charlotte, North Carolina. Religious Studies, Sketches, and Poems by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Section 31. Christ's Second Life in His Followers In a moment of profound emotion, when our Lord contemplated the near approach of the last tragedy in His life, He said, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Accordingly, it was but little more than a month after the scenes of Calvary before Jerusalem was filled with a harvest of men and women who were born into the Christ life and were living and acting in his spirit. At the Feast of Pentecost, Jerusalem was full of strangers, devout Jews from every nation under heaven, and three thousand in one day bowed at the feet of the Jesus whom they had crucified. The chief priests were enraged and terrified, for everywhere the apostles of this crucified Jesus, inspired with a supernatural courage, were working miracles and preaching with an energy even more overcoming than that of the Master. Jesus had been among them but as one man. He had come back as twelve men, every one of whom was full of him, working his works and preaching him with overwhelming power. It is most impressive to read in the book of Acts how Peter and John were called before Annas and Caiaphas, the very tribunal before which Jesus so lately stood, the tribunal before which Peter denied him, and John stood in trembling silence. Now these same men face high priests and elders with heads erect and flashing eyes, and say, If we be this day examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, be it known unto you that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner, neither is there salvation in any other. We can imagine the dismay of the Sanhedrin when such men and such sermons met them at every corner. The record says that, perceiving the boldness of Peter and John, and knowing that they were unlearned men, they marveled, and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. It is not likely that the high priest had forgotten the recent time when Jesus stood bound before him. Evidently, even then, his manner had inspired a secret misgiving awe. And here were these disciples, now looking and speaking just like him, with the same certainty, the same majesty. It was Jesus of Nazareth returning in his followers. It was a terror to them all. But we are told the word of God grew and prevailed. The converts increased in crowds daily. A great company of the priests were obedient to the word. Of course persecution raged. To confess Christ was to lose place, patronage, and daily bread. The Christians, in their new joy, met this by throwing all their worldly possessions into a common stock and apportioning support to each. There were rich men like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and many others, and we read of men who sold all they had and laid the money at the apostles' feet. 
Thus those who daily were thrown out of employment for Christ's sake were supported and relieved. A great financial and administrative business grew up out of this state of things, and we are told that there arose a murmuring among the foreign-born Jews that their widows were neglected in the apportionment of aid. The Jews have been in all ages a trading nation. Palestine was a little country situated in the very heart of the ancient civilized world. It was a center of emigration. Colonies of Jews bearing their religion, their synagogue, their national zeal, had foothold and maintained Jewish worship in almost every leading city of Greece and Rome. They were called, according to their country, Greeks or Romans, while as to religion and race they were Jews. It appears that the proportion of Greek-born Jews among the converts was so great as to warrant the appointment of seven deacons, all of whom bear names which show their Grecian origin. Stephen was evidently a noted man among them. He is described as full of faith and the Holy Ghost. For aught we know, Stephen may have been one of those Greeks who, during the last week of Christ's life in Jerusalem, came to his disciples, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. He may have been among the first fruits of that harvest which Christ then foresaw when he said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. He seems to have been of a nature peculiarly receptive and lovely, a beautiful medium through whom the Christ spirit could reveal itself. If he had been in Jerusalem at the time of Christ's death and witnessed the scenes of Calvary, we may well believe what a fervor was enkindled in his soul, and with what zeal he devoted himself to him. His activity was not confined to the temporal ministrations which were committed to him. He is described as full of faith and power and doing great miracles. He maintained the cause of Jesus in word as well as deed. Certain leaders in a Jewish synagogue of Greek extraction like himself, who still clung to Jewish prejudices, disputed with him, and we are told they were not able to resist the wisdom and power with which he spoke. A tumult was stirred up, and Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin, and stood in the place where his master had stood before him. Again, as before, it was the Jewish national pride and bitterness that were arrayed against him. Stephen had shown the glories of that new spiritual kingdom which Christ was bringing in, where there should be neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ should be all in all. So the accusation was formulated against him. We have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered unto us. The high priest probably felt that now he had got a leading Christian at advantage. He would meet now and expose this sect that threatened to overthrow their country and destroy their venerable religion. He said to Stephen with a semblance of moderation and justice, Are these things so? There was a pause in which Stephen seems to have been so filled by the vision of the glory and beauty of the new life which was opening before the world that he could not speak. It is said, And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Then began that noble speech, evidently the speech of a Greek-born Jew who had studied the Hebrew history from a different standpoint from the rabbins. It is clear from the fragments of this address that it was designed to show, even by their past history, 
that God's dealings with his people had been irrespective of the temple of Jerusalem and the worship there. He dwelt on God's calling of Abraham, his sojourn in Canaan before he possessed it, of God's suffering the chosen race to sojourn in Egypt, of Moses, born and nurtured in a Gentile court and educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians. This man, who lived to the age of 40 years as an Egyptian prince, begins to offer himself as a guide and teacher to his oppressed people, but they reject his mission with scorn. Then comes the scene of the appearance of Jehovah for their rescue and the appointment of Moses to accomplish their deliverance, and he drives home the parallel between Moses and the rejected Jesus. This Moses whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer. This is that Moses who said, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you, like unto me. Him shall ye hear. He then shows how the Jewish nation disobeyed Moses and God, and turned back to the golden calf of Egypt. He traces their history till the time of the building of the temple, but adds that the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Hath not my hand made all these things? We may imagine the fervor, the energy of this brief history, the tone, the spirit, the flashing eye that gave point to every incident. It was perfectly evident what he was coming to, what use he was going to make of this recital, that the Jews were not God's favorites per se, that they were and always had been an ungrateful, rebellious people, that God had chosen them in spite of their sins to be the unworthy guardians and receivers of a great mission for the whole world, that the temple was not a necessity, that it came late in their history, and that God himself had declared his superiority to it. It was easy to see that he was coming round to the mission of Jesus, the prophet whom Moses had predicted and whom they had rejected as they did Moses. But there was evidently a tumult rising, and Stephen saw that he was about to be interrupted, and therefore suddenly, leaving the narrative unfinished, he breaks forth. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? They slew them which prophesied the coming of that just one of whom ye have been the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the dispensation of angels, and have not kept it. These words were as coals dropping upon Naphtha. They were cut to the heart, they gnashed on him with their teeth, they raved round him as wild beasts who collect themselves for a deadly spring. But he, full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. There was something in his rapt appearance, his pale, upturned face and eager eyes, that caused a moment's silence. In a voice of exultation and awe, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. The Son of Man, the very words that Christ had used when he stood before Caiaphas about fifty days before, when he said, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. There was a frantic shriek of rage. 
The court broke up and became a blind, infuriate mob. All consideration was forgotten in the blind passion of the hour. Though they had no legal right to take life without a Roman sentence, they determined to have the blood of this man cost what it might. They hurried him out of the city with curses and execrations. The executioners stripped off their outer garments to prepare for the butchery and laid them down at the feet of a young zealot named Saul of Tarsus. There are many paintings of this scene in the galleries of Europe. We may imagine him, pale and enraptured, looking up into the face of that Jesus whom he saw in glory, and as they threw him violently down, he cried, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Rising to his knees, wounded and bleeding, he added, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And then, says the narrative, he fell asleep. The sweetness and tenderness of this expression shows more than anything else how completely the faith of Christ had conquered death. Christians spoke of death simply as a sleep, and here amid the hootings and revilings of a mob, the crash of stones and insult and execration, nothing could hinder Christ's beloved from falling asleep. At peace within, with a heaven of love in his soul, he pitied and prayed for the wretched creatures who were murdering him, and passed to the right hand of Jesus, the first who had sealed his testimony with his blood. Thus was sown again the first perfected seed of the new wheat which rose from the grave of Christ. Jesus was the first whom the world ever saw praying with his dying breath for his murderers, and Stephen, who had risen to the same majesty of denunciation and rebuke of sin which characterized his master, was baptized into the same tenderness of prayer for the miserable mob who were howling like wild beasts around him. Heavenly love never shrinks from denouncing sin, but it has a prayer for the sinner ever in its breast, and the nearer it comes to the higher world, the more it pities this lower one. But though the orator was crushed, the cause was not lost. Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, had only to reach forth and touch that Saul of Tarsus, who stood consenting to his death, and he fell down at his feet, trembling, crying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The noble work which Stephen had begun, the message of universal love to Jew and Gentile, passed from the hands of dying Stephen to the living Paul, who from that hour spoke the sentiment that must be the animating spirit of every true lover and follower of the Master's footsteps. I am crucified with Christ, and it is no more I that live, but Christ that liveth in me. End of section 31